If I haven't met you before, my name's Caleb, uh, and I have the honor of doing the Bible reading for us. So today we'll be looking through Matthew 14, 1 to 14. So if you have your Bibles there, whip them out so we can follow along. Matthew is just one of the first books of the New Testament, one of the Gospels and accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So that's Matthew 14, starting from verse 1 to verse 14. It is different to what I expected. (laughs) Uh, 13 to 21. Thanks, Felix. Yes, how about I pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this chance for us to be gathered in church today under your name. Uh, Thank you for the chance to hear your word, Father. I pray that uh, you give Iggy as he speaks, uh, words to speak, uh, and help us uh, as we hear your word to be humble. Um, and give us your spirit to be able to discern your word and apply it to our lives. Uh, in your name, amen. Verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down and on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here today, uh, especially after the highs of church cap uh, last weekend. How awesome was that? Um, and my, just my apologies to Caleb. I'm sure my email was very confusing. That's why there was a bit of a mix-up, because uh, there was uh, multiple passages that I, I linked in the email. Uh, but today, we're going to be opening uh, our new sermon series on the second half of the book of Matthew. So as uh, you uh, remember, I'm sure most of you, you would remember Uh, In the first half of the year, we covered the first half of Matthew. And where do we leave off? Where were we when we finished Matthew? Well, we saw Jesus' ministry as he came onto the scene just keep going up and up. We started first with the, the birth of Jesus, and we saw the floodgates of God's promises, scriptures being fulfilled, promises from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, one by one, like dominoes, being fulfilled. We saw Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And and as he was baptized by John, he identifies with one of us, as one of us, a sinner. And as Jesus performs miraculous healings, he casts out demons, as he teaches with absolute authority, unlike the religious religious leaders at the time, he claims that he himself has come to, again, fulfill scriptures, 
not just the promises, not, not just the, the prophecies, but also the law as well. It's all pointing to Jesus. And, and if you were reading this for the first time, reading through the first half of Matthew, you might be starting to think, wow, people are, are paying attention to Jesus. Maybe I'm paying attention to Jesus. People are gathering uh, to him, and you might be wondering, where is this all heading? Is there going to be some big climax, some big moment where Jesus will reveal himself to all of God's people, all of Israel, as the promised Messiah once and for all, that he's bringing about this new kingdom that that he's been teasing so far in the first half of Matthew? Now, as we read the the feeding of the 5,000 this morning, maybe you might be thinking, hey, maybe this is it, right? This is the the grand spectacle that would inaugurate, initiate Jesus' ministry on the wide scale to the whole nation of Israel. Well, let's see at the beginning uh, what is happening here from verse 13. And strangely, Jesus at this point, he's actually withdrawing from his people. He heads to a solitary place or a remote place, somewhere far from civilization, far from any town, far from any city. But the thing is, as Jesus wants to spend time alone, he doesn't get time, uh, very much time alone. Because now Jesus' fame, as we've mentioned, has spread to the point that as soon as word gets around as to where he is, everyone is flocking to see Jesus. It's a bit like how a couple of months ago, there was news that Chris Hemsworth was staying in Byron Bay, and then all of a sudden the town is flooded with visitors hoping to catch a, a glimpse of him. But see here, the crowd isn't just a bunch of fans trying to get Jesus' autograph, but they need healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. And, and this is how Jesus responds to their plea for help. He welcomes them. He sees their need, and the scriptures tells us that he has compassion for them. Now, now we know that, right? Jesus is a very compassionate guy. We've seen that over and over again. But what's so amazing about this here is that let's consider what's happened just before. Let's look at a few verses before this. What's just happened? Jesus has just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been executed by Herod. And this is the reason why he was withdrawing in the first place. He's going to mourn. He wants to be by himself, to go to a quiet place, to mourn his relative. But even so, in Jesus' own grief and sorrow, he doesn't turn the crowd away. Hey, can't you see that I'm grieving here? Can't you see that I'm grieving the loss of my friend and my relative? I need a bit of me time. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, his heart pours out for the people who are coming to him in their distress. Can you see how amazing that is? This is Jesus. This is how selfless his love is, that even through his own pain and grief, his heart breaks for the pain and grief of the crowd. And so Jesus, in his loving care, provides for them. And we're told in this passage, presumably, the crowd is so large that the healing takes a long time. So long, in fact, that now evening is approaching. Uh, Presumably, the healings have been taking place throughout the whole day. 
And so by this time, the, the logic, the, the disciples say something that, 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 that's very logical, right? They tell Jesus, look, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're, we're so far from the towns and the cities. How about sell, send the people home? It's almost nighttime. People need to go and get some food. But imagine hearing what Jesus says to them. He says to them, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. Now, sometimes I, I wish I could go back to see these events just to see how the disciples reacted, just to see their facial expressions. Because I'd like to imagine them staring blankly at this huge crowd in front of them. And then looking at their small lunch basket that they prepped from themselves. And they probably looked at themselves in, in confusion, scratching their heads maybe, and saying, uh, Jesus, we've only got five loaves and two fish here. But Jesus has a plan. He asks his disciples to give him the food and tells them to go around and tell people to sit down on the grass. And while Jesus holds the fish, he looks up to heaven. He gave thanks, praising God for his provision, blessing the meal, blessing God, and then he breaks the loaves. This is where the spectacular thing happens. As he keeps handing out the loaves and the fish to the disciples, those who in turn distributed to the crowd sitting there, it just kept on coming until all the people were satisfied. But not just that, there were leftovers as well, and lots of it. Uh, the, as the disciples being uh, good people who don't want to waste food, they, they went around doggy bagging everything that was left behind, and there were 12 basketfuls of them, pieces of leftover bread. Now, you probably don't need to know how big these baskets were to know that that's a lot of leftovers. And then we hear the true magnitude of this event. The very last line of this passage. The number of those who ate was 5,000 men, besides women and children as well. Let's say roughly 10,000 adults and possibly even 15 or 20,000 mouths altogether to feed. And they're all left satisfied. Now, I wonder what your reaction to all this is. So, some scholars, they balk at the idea that Jesus actually turned five loaves and two fish into enough physical food to actually feed 10,000 people or more. And they do some sort of gymnastics here with the text, and, and they say, oh, well, the key factor here is that Jesus broke that bread. In fact, he broke it so many times in so many small pieces that every single person had a tiny crumb or a tiny shred of fish, and so there was just enough for everyone to eat. But that can't be right, because the, the text is clear. You can't get around it. Each of these 5,000 men and their wives and children, they all ate and were satisfied, even though they had been with Jesus the whole day and they were hungry. Or, or some say, it's not what, it's bread is not what people were filled with. It wasn't physical bread, but they were full and satisfied with Jesus' love. Oh, that's nice. Love is all you need. We don't need real food when you've got the love of Jesus. But again, just read the text, read the words. What does it say? The people all ate and were satisfied. They ate physical bread and physical fish. That's why they were satisfied. 
And so there's no getting around it. Even if we can't explain how this happened, I, I, I don't know if the basket that the disciples were using just kept filling up as soon as it's emptied. I don't know if anyone remembers that, that 90s ad of the never-ending packet of Tim Tams. I remember watching that kid, and oh, that would be nice, you know. You take the last Tim Tam thing, and then you, you get the full packet again. I don't know if that's what happened with the baskets. You know, the last fish came out, and then, boom, it just filled up again. And I don't know if Jesus was the one that, that kept filling the baskets physically as the disciples kept coming back to him. I don't know what happened. But what is clear? What is clear? That a miracle is taking place, something supernatural. And again, you, you might be of the persuasion that, that thinks miracles don't happen. They don't happen. They don't happen because you can't see it in a lab. You can't repeat it in a lab. We don't see it every day. How can this be true? How can you be so gullible to believe this? But see, this is exactly the point. We don't see this every day. Because when the God of the universe, who is in control of all things, the maker of our world, who governs and enables the laws of physics and science to work out consistently, when that God wants to get our attention, he does things that are precisely extraordinary. Something that we just don't think, oh yeah, I see that all the time. And so this is not just a cool party trick that Jesus is performing here. Miracles are supposed to be a sign they're supposed to get our attention and teach us something radical that's going on. And so the question for us is, what are, we make, what are we to make of this amazing miracle? Well, let's ask the question. What were God's people meant to make of this miracle back then? When else has God's people seen this miraculous providing of food out of thin air? Where else have we read about such an event where not just one or two people were fed, but multitudes of God's people were fed. Where else did this take place that was in a remote place, far from town, far from any access to, to farms or shops or homes? Well, there's only one place, isn't there? It's in the book of Exodus. As God raised up his leader Moses to lead his people out of oppression, out of slavery from Egypt, Moses, who led Israel through the wilderness, through the desert, far from any supply of food and provision, to learn to trust in God's provision. And there God did provide. He provided the people with manna, the food that in Exodus was called the bread which God provides. And in fact, there was so much food that thousands upon thousands of Israelites ate and were satisfied. Even there, we see that there was so much bread, so much manna, that there were leftovers. And there are even subtle hints in this passage, in, in, in the feeding of the 5,000, that this is exactly what, what God is trying to point to, because there were, what, 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the same wording that we see in Exodus. 600,000 men besides women and children. There were 12 basketfuls of leftovers, presumably one for each disciple, but that could be just the tip of the hat to the 12 tribes, the 12 groups of people being fed through the wilderness. And so what is the link here? What, what, is, what are we supposed to get here? Jesus is saying he is the new Moses. 
Jesus is the one who is gathering him for himself, a new people of God. A new exodus where Jesus will redeem and save his people from oppression and slavery and into a new promised land. A new promised land where the promises of abundance, prosperity, peace, and life to the full is to be experienced perfectly. This is it. This is that great moment we've been waiting for, right? Jesus' moment has finally come. A new people of God bring in the new kingdom. I want to be fed. I want to be satisfied with fish and bread all the days of my life. We as God's people would never go hungry again. Now with Jesus at the helm. We as God's people will never suffer sickness and illness again, right? With Jesus' healing. But of course, we all know that if this is the end, there's something a bit off about this, isn't it? Because I think there's another event that we're meant to consider as we come into this miracle. And that is, in the, again, in, in our chapter 14, once again, the bit that I specifically told uh, Caleb not to read out for us. But that is the trigger for this whole event to happen in the first place. And that is John's death. Remember, it was John's death that led to Jesus withdrawing and, and thus led to this miracle. And it's not just incidental that these things happen together. But I think these are actually tightly linked on purpose so that we get a bigger picture of what's going on, so that we don't get a skewed picture of what's going on. So let's go back to chapter 14, verse 1. And we're told an odd story that at first doesn't seem to be relevant at all. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, that is, his miracles and his wonders. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this Herod, he was one of the sons and that none other than Herod the Great that we, that we met at the beginning of Matthew. Remember Herod the Great? He was the one who was so paranoid about Jesus, the prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled, that he went around ordering the murder of all baby boys two and under in Bethlehem. Look how paranoid he was about his crown. And now he's dead. And now one of his sons, Herod, the Tetrarch, has taken over one of the little regions uh, that he once controlled. But this Tetrarch also shows his paranoia. Hearing the miracles, his first conclusion that he, he jumps to was that it must be someone raised from the dead. And his first guess was John the Baptist. Why was he so paranoid about John the Baptist? Well, Matthew goes on to explain. Herod had John arrested because John was calling Herod out. Herod had married his brother's wife. And it must have been while his brother was still alive. That's, that's when he married him. That's why John says it was not lawful for Herod to marry her. And so this Herod was so enraged. How dare you tell me what to do? I'm the ruler of Galilee and Perea. You can't tell me what to do. But because all the common people thought that John the Baptist was a prophet, this Herod was too scared to do anything about it. So instead of killing him, he puts him into prison instead. But then we read about, we read about the event just before this, just before the feeding of the 5,000. He throws a birthday party during which his illegitimate wife's daughter performs some dance that, that pleased him and the guests so much that he promises to give her 
right? A daughter, probably a teenager at this time, whatever she wants. Not just any promise, but he swears with an oath in front of all his guests, whatever you want, I, can, I will give you to a teenager. What could go wrong, right? And this is where Herod's wife, Herodias, steps in. See, what, what Herod was too scared to do, Herodias clearly saw this as an opportunity to get this loudmouth prophet out of her life. And she says, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Can you imagine the depth of hatred, the brutality of someone who would order the actual head of someone to be brought in in front of all the guests at her husband's birthday party? So Herod is in a bind. He's, he's distressed because he still fears the people. And notice in the story, what is he called for the first time in the story here? For the first time in the story, he's called the king. What is this mighty king of Galilee and Perea going to do? This mighty king who was outplayed by his very own wife. Well, he didn't have much of a choice, did he? He just sworn an oath in front of all his guests. And so he orders John the Baptist to be executed and his head brought out. And it's later that John's own disciples come, bury John's body before telling Jesus. This is the event that set things into motion that led to the feeding of the 5,000. But why was that? What connection is there between these seemingly unrelated events? First, we need to remember who John the Baptist was. Take ourselves back to the beginning of the year when we first met John. What was his role? He was meant to be the last prophet, standing at the threshold of the Old and the New Testament, bringing, in, bringing out the old, introducing the one who will bring in the new. This is the man who Jesus claimed, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. And yet this is how he lived his life. But more than that, John was supposed to prepare the way for the Lord, for God himself, for Jesus, the Son of God. And so now, the one who prepares the way for the Lord is executed and justly. It's an ominous foretaste of the path that Jesus himself will take. John has laid the groundwork for the Messiah to also suffer and die an unjust death. And so can you start to see now how these two stories are connected? Now that John has suffered and died, it's now Jesus' turn to set his path to suffer and die. And how will this happen? Well, it happens because Jesus' ministry will now enter a new stage, a spectacular feeding of 5,000 men and women and children on top. Jesus' most public miracle to date. His fame will now spread and spread like wildfire. And for the rest of our series on Matthew, we will see that more, with more and more fame comes more and more opposition to Jesus, more and more persecution of the one who's meant to lead God's people the more the religious leaders of the day will become jealous of Jesus' popularity and see him as a threat, and the more they will try and put an end to Jesus' ministry. This is the trigger that starts it all off. 
a miracle witnessed before thousands ominously following the death of John the Baptist. But these two connected events also fittingly sets up another key theme that happens again and again in the second half of Matthew. And we're going to see this over and over again. And that is, as Jesus teaches about this new kingdom that he's creating, the new people that he's gathering in for himself, this kingdom, this people is radically different to what people expect of God's kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, it flips on its head everything that you might expect from a human perspective. What greatness looks like in the kingdom, flipped on its head. What victory looks like, flipped on its head. What is considered fair in God's eyes and how this kingdom will come about. And so we'll see this in the coming weeks. And all of these things will utterly shock God's people who already had a pretty good idea, they thought, in their own minds of what this kingdom looked like. But let's come back to our two passages today. In these two events that we read, what do we see? We see that, yes, God's promised king has come spectacularly. There's no doubt about that. God is making for himself a new people, taking them to a new promised land. But also, shockingly, we see that the path to this happening is one of oppression, being mistreated with justice, just like John the Baptist. And so in one sense, we need to be holding these two events side by side for us to have a right view of what it means to be called as one of God's people, to be part of God's kingdom. And so how how does holding these two pictures up help, help us where we are right now? Are you here today? And your Christian life or your life in general is just been real tough. If you're a Christian, maybe it's the the, the mockery, the ridicule that you face day by day from your your friends as you you go to work and they mock you for your views on sexuality, your your outdated views on, on, on sex before marriage or whatever it is. How can you still believe that? Maybe it's even coming from your own family that you just can't escape from. Maybe you look at the world and you wonder, where are you, God? As the world seems to be going deeper, deeper into corruption divisiveness, as the church even seems to be more focused on fighting one another instead of being united for the sake of the gospel, you're like, where's the hope? What are you doing, God? In the midst of all this, maybe you think, when are you going to act, God? Where's this kingdom that you're, you're bringing about? I can't see it. Or maybe life is just hard for you at the moment. Just your personal life. Life is tough. You're you're just struggling. And one of the things that uh, I think a lot of us were touched by at the church camp last weekend was just the the honest sharing about some of us are just really going through some really tough things. Maybe that's you. And all of this just weighs on you heavily. Just thinking about that makes it hard to breathe. Maybe you're tempted to think this is all the Christian life has to offer. If this is you, I want you to look up. Just like the song that we sang at the beginning of the service, cast your eyes on Jesus. Look upon Jesus. Look closely at who Jesus is as he takes on this perfect role of Moses who calls a people out of oppression into a new relationship with God. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He is transforming 
a people for his kingdom throughout the whole world. So while on the outside it looks like the world is headed downwards, but on the inside, under the surface, God is surely making things into a new creation, into a perfect world. But also in each and every one of us, those of us who would put our trust in Jesus, we are being transformed into glory, into perfection, into seamlessness, even though it just feels so hard at the moment. Keep looking at Jesus. Look up. Yes, the path that Jesus calls you to is hard. But keep looking to Jesus. He is doing his work right now. Remind ourselves that as we groan inwardly, eagerly waiting a new creation, that we too are following the same path of John the Baptist who was unjustly executed. We are also following the same path of the servant king who was nailed to the cross. You're not on the wrong path just because you're suffering. Take comfort in that. Take assurance in that. Never take your eyes off Jesus who he is, where he is leading us, but also his path that he took himself. Let these two pictures serve as a reminder for us. But it's not, not just people who are suffering, because these two pictures also serve as a reminder for those of us who might be living some sort of cut-down version of the good life. Now, if, if we read John's account of the same feeding of the 5,000 in, in the Gospel of John, Uh, we know that this event caused lots and lots of people to start following Jesus. But there's a problem with that. Because Jesus says a lot of them, if not most of them, are following him for the wrong reasons. They saw, they understood the sign of the miracle, but what they were following him for was actually physical food. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. They missed the bigger picture of what Jesus was doing, what we've already seen before. Jesus is creating a new people of God, a new kingdom, a new creation, a new redemption, a new salvation. It's not about physical bread. It's not about filling your empty stomachs. Now, several years ago, uh, there was a date that had me very excited. It was December the 17th. Star Wars Episode 7 was coming out. And I, 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 at first, when I heard the news, I was really skeptical. Are you sure you want to you know, make another Star Wars movie? Are you going to ruin like, the, the perfect trilogy of 4, 5, and 6? Uh, sure, I was keen to see how the next chapter would unfold, but surely Disney, I was assuming it's all about Disney, uh, the guy who directed Star Trek. But do you know what got me really excited about this movie? the first time I saw the teaser trailer as Mark Hamill's voice starts talking about the force, seeing the iconic stormtroopers march, seeing, hearing the familiar nostalgic Star Wars music, the atmosphere. And to me, this short two-minute clip captured perfectly the nostalgia and the essence of the original Star Wars movie. And as I was teased with these little snippets of the film, brief shots of the alien landscapes, the new heroes, the new villains, it whet my appetite. I couldn't wait to watch the movie. See, that's what a well-made trailer is supposed to do, right? And in a way, 
as, wonder, as, as wonderful, as amazing as the feeding of the 5,000 was. Just imagine being there. How awesome would that be? As ma- amazing as it was, it's merely a trailer. It's merely a teaser of the fullness, of the greatness of the kingdom to come. And so if we walk away from that miracle, as we, as we read this, thinking God is going to satisfy all my physical needs now, we've just missed the complete, completely the whole point, haven't we? It's like I've enjoyed the movie trailer so much that I just keep watching the trailer over and over again, even while the movie is out. I've missed the whole point of the trailer. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But we know this, right? Many of us have been Christians for a long time. We know that we, we are to set our eyes on eternity. What's out there is so much greater. We need to live for that, that the riches of this world are not meant to tie us down. We can't serve two masters. We can either serve only God or money. We can't serve both. We saw that again at the beginning of the year. We saw that in the book of Isaiah as he calls out how stupid worshipping anything else other than God is. And yet, how easy is that we fall into a way of living that looks like it's more interested in earthly bread rather than what Jesus is really calling us to with our money, with our planning, with our decisions that we make in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, we might ask, is what I'm ultimately investing in, is what I I want to harvest in all that I do in this world, is that more important than the outlook, the wonderful promised land, the harvest that Jesus is preparing for us for all eternity? That we too, like the crowds, we just want our fill. That's what we want. Right here, right now. Yes. Yes. We want that. But the the deception, deceptive thing about this is that we have kitted ourselves that we can have it all. Right? As we say, yes, I long for the eternity of heaven. I want to see God face to face. I want a relationship with Jesus. We also go, I also want to be filled in this life right now. We can have it all, we think. And so I think we need to see the greater reality of the feeding of the 5,000 all the more. Stop and think. Look up at what Jesus has come to do in its fullness. Not to satisfy our earthly desires, but to lead us to that promised land. The feeding of the 5,000 was but a taste of the fullness that is to come. But again, we need to hold these both, both these pictures up, right? We also need to remind ourselves of the path that John the Baptist took and the one that Jesus followed in. We need to know that if, you're, if we're a follower of Jesus, this world has no lasting place for us. That if we follow Jesus, we, in a very real sense, have died to this world, just like Jesus, just like John the Baptist. And so don't hold on to this material world as if, It's worth dying for. No, we've died to it, not for it. So we need to ask ourselves, are we prepared to die to this world? Have you already died to this world? So no matter who we are, we need to look at these two pictures. These two pictures are what it means to be part of God's people that Jesus is bringing in. We need to know that this life the material things of this world that we can touch and see and smell and taste, this isn't all that there is. 
And so whether we are overwhelmed by grief and suffering as we follow the Messiah, or if we're being tempted to, to, to follow and to chase after the riches and the comfort of this world that, that calls out to our hearts, in whatever situation you might be in, look to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who brings us into that perfect promised land that will just blow our minds. That's got nothing of all the little taste that we can get in this world. Jesus, who does this, who leads us into this promised land by suffering injustice, dying on a cross so that we might even have a chance of entering into this wonderful promised land that we live in. Keep looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. We worship you as the one who is able to, to feed 10,000 people or more with two fish and five, five fish and two loaves, uh, five loaves and two fish. But Father, we, we, we ask that you would help us not just to be amazed and shocked by the physical feeding that you do, but more so the true reality that you are bringing in a new creation that, that far surpasses anything that we've ever tasted. And so help us to, to look at the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, and, and, and desire so much more than physical bread, to long for that eternal kingdom that you are bringing about. But more so, Lord, we also pray that you would help us to be people who see the path of John the Baptist, who see the path of Jesus, that wherever we're at, whether we need to take comfort that this is the path that Jesus took, or maybe be rebuked that this is the path that Jesus took. Lord, please help, help us to have this balanced view of what it means now to be your people, that we might be continually transformed into the likeness of Christ as we follow him. Please do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.